welcome to Human HQ's Beyond Human podcast. I'm Dr. Beatrice Craven. And I'm Holly Conway. And we want to give you a fly on the wall peek into the kinds of conversations that we have here over at Human HQ. We're a passion project based out of Houston, Texas, that believes in cultivating social and emotional wellness through the power of human connection. And specifically through storytelling. We all have stories, and we believe that when we approach one another through storytelling and listen through curiosity, the way we do here at Human HQ, beautiful things can happen. We are so, so happy that you're here, and we hope that our willingness to be beyond human together inspires you to share your own stories and approach the world with a bit more curiosity, too. Be well and be kind, y'all. More on Human HQ at humanhq.org. Now let's get to talking. This is Human HQ. I am Holly Conway and Dr. Beatrice Craven. We are the founders and creators of Human HQ, and we exist as a community and a lighthouse here in Houston. We really are based and founded on the values of kindness and connection. And more than anything, we just want to be a space in a big city that is a place where people can come together and have good conversations meet like-minded people who like to talk about interesting things, who are kind, and um, really just a chance to meet and connect with people in a place that sometimes can be kind of hard to meet and connect with people and have deep, good conversations. We're not a place of judgment. We're not a place that you have to worry that you're going to share something and people are going to kind of pounce on what you said. I love B always says, like, that's what the internet is for. That's not what we're for. <laughs> this is a place where your stories are safe and your opinions are safe, your thoughts are safe. We really are just here to listen and to hear your stories and to hear your thoughts. So we love you. We love hearing your, your thoughts, your opinions, and your stories. We here tonight are to hear a lot about Starla Garcia's story. And we're going to kind of be focusing on her story. And throughout the night, we're going to pause three different times throughout her story and ask you guys some questions based on her story. And we'll dig into your story kind of in connection with her story. That's kind of the flow of our time together. A little bit of just quick inspiration and background. We love having conversations here at Human. And one of the things that we started to experience too is just kind of like there's there's so many inspiring, incredible people within our cities and within our and within like just right under our nose, like right here in our community, and like wanting to get to know some of these lights in our city. And so Starla is absolutely one of those lights where we're like, man, like you have like this just like goodness that you want to like put out just like meaning driven work that you can really just feel your heart and your purpose and what it is that you do. And so tonight's hustle night, which is everything about our purpose, meaning, vocation, how we translate a lot of those things and really bring them into our work. And you're such a beautiful representation of that um, where you can just really feel it just like come from you. So we're really excited to be able to share in storytelling and get to know more about who you are as a human being and all the different things that influenced you on your journey into, you know, doing this really like meaningful work as a dietitian, but with all of the depth and richness that you bring into it, you know, just that comes from your story. So that's a little bit of the inspiration for our event series and, and what we do on the monthly event side. Our goal tonight is to really dig into Starva's story and to get to know a lot about her and her life. So we do, we like to start at the very beginning. And so whenever we think about you, Starla, when you think of the, the beginning of your life, the beginning of your story, the roots of you, where do you think that begins? If you think of the beginning of your story, where does that start for you? 
That's a great question. So hello, everyone. Thanks for coming in today and listening to my story. I'm really excited to dive into this and also help you explore a little bit more of yours. My story is woven into a lot of mental health issues. There's entrepreneurism as well. There's also other other issues around healthism, socioeconomic status, and racism as well, a little bit in there, and cultural identity. So I hope that, you know, maybe some of us can find a little bit more of some of those things that maybe have been really scary to look at over the last couple months. I hope you find this space really helpful for you. So my story really starts in the Rio Grande Valley. I grew up in a small town called Far, Texas. So if you were to Google and pull out your phone, Far, Texas, you would find like this little tiny town at the very tip of Texas. And so that's where I'm from. I grew up a runner. So I was always running around Far, Texas. And it wasn't like in Houston where we have like these beautiful paved bayous. It was along a lot of goat trails or like canal systems. That was where I started to run. Um, And so really, really getting my feet dirty in those canal systems. And just, again, I think just having a lot of fun with it. I would say when I was younger, my dad would say that I was like the hardest worker out of the three of my sisters. He said that if there was like a task or like a goal that I had, that I would just zone in on it. And so it was a very type A personality. And I think it was just a lot of all or nothing. I remember being a kid and like expecting to be like 100% on everything. I wanted to like learn all of my math. I would have my mom, you know, make flashcards for me when I was learning to read. My mom got so tired of reading to me that she had to like record her voice and tell me to turn the page because I was just such a driven kid and I wanted to excel at every single thing that I did. It was very, very over the top, but I think now I've learned to like very much calm down. But growing up, I was just like all or nothing, go hard or go home. And I think it just had to do a lot with, I was a middle child. And I think just like having some kind of identity, I felt like I was always hustling as like a young kid to always keep up with my older sister who was just naturally smart. And I felt like I always had to live up to that expectation as well. And so I put even more pressure on myself to live up to that. Very early on, when I started running, my dad also identified me as like the runner. And so I quickly started to self-identify as that kid as well. I think when you're a child, when your parents start to label you, you automatically start to hold on to that identity and you really start to, I think, pursue more of those interests because you feel like that is where I'm going to excel at. That's this is what I'm best at. And this is just what I'm going to do. Oh man, tell it. You're making me think real quick too, just about like, family roles. I'm like, oh, I don't know how deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like all and stuff. You know, I'm the baby, you know, in my uh-huh. family. And like, even when you were speaking to like looking up to, you know, your, your older sister, you know, mm-hmm. kind of seeing what she's up to. And like, I like resonated with that so hard, you know, of having two older brothers and seeing what they were accomplishing. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, like, would that have felt different for me? And like the pressures that I felt as a kid, like nobody would say like, you need to, you know, kind of like, be x y and z just from like what you're seeing from your siblings but but you can't help but observe you know and kind of see what they do how like parents respond to them that kind of thing yes so i remember telling my coach that i wanted to run it in college and so he told me well if you want to run in college you're going to have to work really really hard and do you think that you can do that and i said yes, I'm, I'm game. Tell me what to do. And so I quickly learned that again, I was not the best, but I knew that I was the most consistent just by what my dad had always told me and that I was a hard worker. So I was just really, really 
really willing to put in the work despite not being the best. And I knew that eventually if my hard work paid off and I was consistent, I was eventually going to be where I wanted to be. So I was willing to wait it out and be very patient. So what ended up happening during that time was, again, I was very type A personality. I started to notice that whenever we would go to larger meets that I would start to compare my body um, and I would start to see you know, I am the only Hispanic person or my team is the only Hispanic person here, the only Hispanic team here. Why is that happening? Or why aren't there other Hispanic teams at this level and so forth? So it started to really make me like take a step back and really see like, how could I be better? And why are these other teams better or white teams better? And what's kind of going on here? So I think that was like the first time that I had ever really felt imposter syndrome. I knew that I could work really hard, but I think when I started to see people that were different from me, it started to really make me feel, am I good enough for this sport? Do I have what it takes? So I just started to just kind of plug away and kind of put it, try to put it in the back of my mind. And so when I started to be a junior in in high school, I was getting close to college recruiting. I was getting close to being a senior and applying for schools. And I knew that, again, I was going to have to put out a really good performance. So I worked really, really hard. I had a lot of AP classes and unknowingly, I started to lose weight. And then I received a lot of positive feedback from my weight loss. And I, again, this was me like being hyper-focused on school and not like being aware of how much I was eating. So it was like a very slow progression and very innocent progression into weight loss. And so when I started to see the weight loss, my coaches started to see it and my team started to see it. They started to reinforce it and say like, you know, you lost weight. This is probably why you're getting faster. So that's kind of the start of where my disordered eating habits began. At the end of my junior year, my coach asked me, you know, you're pretty in shape. I think you should move up to the longer distance races. How about you go up to the two mile? And at that time I was just like stuck on the mile or 800 meters. And she said, I think you should do it for the team. Me being a team player and a type eight person, I said, okay, sure. If that's going to help us win, I'll do it. So I moved up to the two mile. I ended up winning and I was going into the, one of the biggest meets of my career at that point by myself at with the fastest time. So I was going into a regional meet with a spot to potentially move into state where I would have recruiters looking at me, which was ideal going into my senior year. You want to have recruiters looking at you, especially if you're going to be a college athlete. So needless to say, uh, when I got to the race, again, I felt imposter syndrome. I started to feel like I'm not good enough. How do I get through this? I'm not thin like everybody else. I don't look like everybody else. My color is different. I came from this school. I'm from this area of Texas. What am I doing here? So I ended up getting third and only the first two spots make it to state. So I didn't go to state. And I remember telling myself, you know, next year when this happens, you're going to be in the top two. So again, I went back um, over and over the next year. I hyper-focused again. And on this time, it wasn't just the miles in schoolwork. It was also with food. So um, it really started to- I wonder, Starla, just real quick too, um, because you were, I can like really feel so much of that like sensation of otherness. You know, of like being kind of like the, well, I, I've always loved this terminology ever since like um, this was introduced of like the first only different, mm-hmm. like the FOD, you know, type of a thing where, and, and that can be, that can really, really bring up a lot of different things. So it sounded like whenever you were already like getting ready to, to move into that next place that you were feeling kind of the height of that, it sounds like. 
like was that so that was um within your home community too that you were saying that like it was predominantly like caucasian so back home it was predominantly latino so i would say okay. rio grande valley or like far texas and the surrounding area mm -hmm. it's predominantly latino and it's also lower socioeconomic status as well. So I was considered like a middle-class family or upper-class family there. And again, this is this is now me looking back in retrospect. When I was there, I didn't realize like all the privilege that I did have. But I think when I was moving into like higher levels of competition, it became very aware. So it was almost like I became less naive of what was happening. So it's almost like, when a child loses their innocence, it's kind of like, it was almost like that feeling where I was also like, hey, I'm really different. And like, there's nobody else that looks like me towing the line. Why is that? And so feeling like I had to look like everybody else to feel like I was good enough. And I think like, because nothing had ever been explained to me about like ethnicities or like the different disparities ever before that I was a minority woman. I had never mm -hmm. even like realized that I was a minority woman because I was in such a largely majority Latino area, completely homogenous. So mm -hmm. it wasn't until I had actually come to Houston that I realized that I was a minority woman. Do you remember where, because it's interesting as you're telling this story, Sarah, I was like, oh my gosh, you were like, what, like 16 at this time, right? I was like 16, oh, yeah. 17. Yeah. I was like 17 years old yeah. and when I moved to Houston, I was 18 years old, which is like very rare for a Hispanic girl my age to leave home by themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's like very, very uncommon. Um, and I was moving six hours away from my family. Mm -hmm. So I arrived in Houston completely by myself. I moved into my dorm by myself. Mm -hmm. I met my teammates by myself. And luckily, like, like my teammates were great people to where like mm -hmm. I went to the grocery store with them and like they took me everywhere. So it was yeah. almost like this community that started, but I really just felt alone. And like, I remember the first day of like biology class, like I went into the class and, you know, University of Houston is like one of the most diverse schools in the country. Right. And I was just like, wow, like I've never even like noticed like that there were so many different people in Houston. Right. And so unknowingly, because I was like in such a different world for the very first time, I sat down to the first Hispanic looking person and they were Colombian. <laughs> and that was like the first time I'd ever had a Colombian friend or like a different kind of Hispanic friend. Um, so it was like a huge eye-opening experience for me at the first, the very first year. And now I look back and it's like really, really funny because I look at my client population and it's so different. But I remember like going into University of Houston the very first day of biology class. And I was just like, where do I sit? Like, how yeah. do I feel so comfortable? Because I'm thinking of even like the stories you were just telling, you know, of like that, that regional meet, you know, and kind of like looking around and like, you were so young, really, but you were having these very kind of like adult pressures that you were putting on yourself, you know, like, mm -hmm. I have to figure this out and I, what's wrong with me? And it's like, it's, it's to, to, to feel like how much pressure you were putting on yourself, mm -hmm. like needing to like earn your way to college. And like, I don't know, I just feel such compassion for your like little 16 year old self. Like, that's really <laughs> so young, you know, and I'm like, man, she is so young to have all that pressure to be put on yourself. Do you feel compassion for, for yourself now when you're looking back on yourself? Does that feel like a very young person? I always felt like an older soul, to be honest, as a mm -hmm. kid, and I think a teenager. So to me, like these thoughts and feelings are, 
I think they've always kind of been there. Well, now when I have clients that are like my age and they're struggling with disorder eating or like a potential eating disorder, they remind me a lot of like me when I was younger, mm-hmm. where they're so much more aware, but and, in, and intuitive, but they don't understand how to like harness or understand their intuition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like from your story, you always were kind of like that, you know, like even you know, like reading, doing the flashcard, even when you were maybe even younger than a teenager, a child, you were like kind of very like putting a lot of pressure on yourself and high expectations even from childhood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like, like, this is kind of embarrassing to where like, if I had like, an ice cream like dripped on my shirt, I would go and like change my shirt or like clean it. And because I hated to be like, messy or imperfect. Mm-hmm. Or like all of my shoes had to be like perfectly like pristine and like perfectly tied and everything like that. So it was like, like now I asked my parents, like maybe I should have been assessed for like OCD or like something like that. Because now looking back at a lot of my patterns of behavior, I think it was just a lot of anxiety driven behaviors of like not living up to the expectations that I had. And my mom said I was like an extremely anxious kid because I was just so driven all the time. And I would just like fear not doing well and then eventually I guess like as I became a teenager it became okay and like I was able to adapt to it but again like once pressure came back on um and I was unable to cope with it that's where like I started to fixate on running and then like body image mm-hmm. yeah there's so much that I can connect it to with like in a way I think about it just kind of like how do we deal just as like mm-hmm. people and as families Cause I can totally see that, you know, move through like my, my family tree, you know, essentially is like the, and, and it is like the, those like OCD tendencies, like the over control, you know, essentially mm-hmm. like with some of like the eating stuff are like, just like right there, like right next to each other. And I feel like they're like cousins and like, literally we're like cousins. I can see it in my family, you know, yeah. where yeah. like there's that, you know, like, I feel like that's definitely feels very at home, you know, within my family system of like, mm-hmm. looking for how we how we move through and like process our stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think um, now that I learned more about like trauma informed care, and like, um, if we look at acculturation in, um, through generations of minority families and communities and communities of color, like I'm second and third generation Latino my dad was a first generation and my mom was second generation. And so now I think about like, okay, like what were the experiences that they had that maybe like transferred over? And now like, I'm just expressing the anxiety that they were unable to now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's part of like, even when like Paul was, was speaking to like, you know, the, the feelings of connectedness that you have with like that younger self, Mm-hmm. You because know, it is like looking like from where we are now, we're like, oh my gosh, like what a tiny little thing to be moving through all this stuff in the world. And then I was thinking about that. I was like, man, but at 17, like that's kind of like right on target, you know, so to speak, like when it comes to what we expect out of ourselves, just moving through the education system and like, what do you want to do with your life? And what is the next thing? And like already, like this is the start of like the rest of your life, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. and like. Exactly. thinking about that because it's like I I also like similar to, to to your story in this way too I'm like nobody talked to me about the complexities of not just like of like my process of becoming included those additional factors of ethnicity and culture and like the differences that like I I didn't register it that way I just felt like I was trying to fit into boxes and and become versions outside that I could see outside of myself 
and the pain of like trying to conform in ways that like I just couldn't, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. But like, I didn't have the language for that. I just felt the internal like anguish of trying mm -hmm. to be good enough, of trying to fit in, of trying to be the things that I'm seeing around myself. And so I didn't, I didn't start to look and examine those things until I was like way older. Mm -hmm. And like, honestly, whenever I was training to become a psychologist, I think like that's when I really started to get deep into some of those questions. So it just makes me think, you know, for you and your path, you know, to, to be this little thing, you know, but those are the expectations that the world are, is putting on us. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Oh yeah. I love what you said B about like, we don't have the language. I think that's why I'm feeling that like compassion for like, it's such a little thing is we don't have the language. Like I'm picturing a little like 17 year old you with that starting line looking around and being like, Ugh. and you didn't like, you didn't know how to say like, I feel different because I'm not white. You know, like you didn't know, you didn't even know like that's yeah. what you were feeling, you know? But like now you know to say that. So you didn't know to like go home to your mom and say like, mom, I feel weird because I don't look like the other girls. You know, it's like if this was like a after school special, like you would like know to like go home and be like, I don't feel, I don't feel like everyone. And it's like, it's not all that simple because like you didn't know the language to speak of why you felt different. So your mom couldn't like talk you through it. Be like, well, this is why you feel different. You know, so it's like, it is tricky. Like we just have these like kind of like internal sensations of like, I, I feel different. I don't know why or I, I don't fit and I don't look like everyone else and I don't, I don't feel good about it. So it, it's something that I, I hope, you know, kind of like the more conversations we can have like this and especially like with your generations and like people, younger kids can hear conversations like this and kind of, and can talk and just have the language to say like, I don't know what it is, but I feel weird at school. Like I feel weird around my friends or, and then we can all just kind of like have more language to be able to start to talk about this more. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because I think at the time, I just, I didn't realize that I didn't like, I didn't have a language, but the mm -hmm. way that I was, I think, trying to reframe like this discomfort was, well, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like it's all like hard work anyway. And so like, there's no excuses at this point. Like it's just going to show like in the time. And so mm -hmm. I just have to show up and like do it because if they could do it, I could do it too. And I think it was just kind of that mentality was there as well, but there, it still didn't dismiss like the discomfort I was feeling. So when I got to University of Houston, I ran in college, again, faced with the same pressures of lining up and being like um, very few women of color at the line. Um, and I just couldn't deal with that pressure. I was a very good runner, ended up being like top five indoor of all time when I was there went to USA juniors as like an 18 year old. So it's basically trying out for the junior Olympic team for the US when I was, I think like 19. And again, there's a photo of me and like, I'm the only woman of color on the starting line. And so again, super aware, hyper aware of like um, me being I'm already woman in the sport and being a person of color, especially in distance events. Cause on the track and like shorter di distances, there are more people of color, but in distance running, it's very few people of color. So what ended up happening shortly after that race is I fell very deeply into a full-blown um, eating disorder. So before it was disorder eating, and then I had an eating disorder. On top of that, I was also a nutrition major. So the rest of my collegiate training was very unexciting. It was just me really trying to figure out and navigate this eating disorder and get out to the other side. I was extremely lucky in that I was at University of Houston and was not kicked off the team because they did help me with services and like helping me uh, get connected to therapists and dietitians that helped me move along into my recovery process. And then I eventually, you know, I think I woke up one day 
after like being out with friends and I had looked around and all of my friends had changed. They had all matured. They had all grown throughout college. And I remember reflecting on like my growth and I was just like, nothing has changed. Starla is still the same person. She's still like this, the small, tiny one. Like, is this always going to be me? Um, and so I think like from that moment forward, I decided, well, no, it doesn't have to be, it can change. And so from that point on, I really like made a, a promise to start to move forward in my recovery process. And I think like after that, that was like right before my senior year of college. And I entered recovery by the very end of my, my senior year. So right before graduation, I think like a month before I fully entered recovery at that point. So it was very like rocky, very, very hard to get through. But again, I leaned on my therapist. I was again, very, very lucky to be at University of Houston. I still ran, which was also really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then when I entered recovery and I had graduated, I was in grad school. And one of the biggest turning points was just very much like the, I started to do graduate work at MD Anderson in the health disparities research. And so I started to learn about acculturation, assimilation, socioeconomic status, health disparities that were plaguing like communities of color. And how do we even like measure assimilation? Like I thought that was so interesting because I had always wondered like, you know, how much of a Latina am I? Or can I actually identify as a Latina? And like, to what extent does that identity look like? Um, because again, I didn't speak the language. My parents didn't teach it to me. And it's always been really hard for me to pick up. It's still very choppy, I will admit. But it was like things like that, that I didn't have the tools or I didn't, again, have the understanding or even the language to describe what my cultural identity was. So it was really in grad school after everything that happened that that I started to really work through these things and like what my identity was as a woman of color and what did that mean for me. In my graduate work, I also saw a lot of like cultural demonization of foods in nutrition courses. So it was a lot of like tortillas are bad, pork and carnitas, like we don't eat those things. And like, those were things that I had grown up on. So it was like really confusing to like see all of these things back home and then like feel left out, but then like be trying to impose like these health beliefs. So it was a lot of like healthism that I had to understand. And understand <laughs> I just like, I can immediately imagine like profess like that's just wrong. <laughs> like I have like my carnitas yeah. and stuff like. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. So. Yeah, it was just like really, really interesting being in grad school. I really mm -hmm. felt like that I really needed that time. And it was like, mm -hmm. it was really like regaining my adulthood and like my identity. And like those two years, like it really fed me a lot of like information. And I think a lot of the things that I didn't get to learn when I was doing my undergraduate work in nutrition. Mm -hmm. So like, I didn't even want to be a dietitian after, after undergrad. Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't fit the box. I'm not white. Like I can't afford it what do I do? Like, I'm not going to be like, I can't be perfect because I know if I try to be perfect, I'm going to relapse. Like I can't do it. And I was always afraid to try to fit this mold of like what I thought and what I saw a dietitian had to be because I knew that that wasn't for me and it was going to make me relapse. But I was like looking all this, through all this research and I just felt like this is not right. There has to be another way to talk about like nutrition and to inform people. And I just felt like there's more people like me that are struggling with their identity that are also struggling with nutrition that are athletes and that are, are like athletes of color 
just like me. Like I can't be the only one in this world, right? I can't be the only one in Texas. I love that. So it was just kind of like, and I think when I was going through that and like when I was very low, it was always like, when I get through this, there's going to be some kind of mission. There has to be, like, I'm not suffering for nothing. And I think that's what I always kind of thought of whenever I was really low. Like, I'm not suffering for nothing. There has mm-hmm. to be something that I'm going to get from here. Like, there has to be some kind of learning endpoint where I'm going to be able mm-hmm. to turn it over and give to people. Yeah. And so that would be a really good time for us to pause for our first question, don't you, be Like, I think it's <laughs> a perfect, perfect time. Because yeah. that's one of the, a really good yeah. thing that we wanted people to chew on in their stories was kind of what Starla was talking about. A lot of moments you talked about, actually, or some several aha moments that you kind of talked about several different moments of identity for yourself mm-hmm. and the impacts that, that that's had on your sense of sense of worth and sense of self-worth. You know, to help tie some of the stuff back into like and that would be a point. So I would like love to even like keep talking about this stuff as we go through, you know, like the night after, you know, we, we move through this question. But, you know, it was making me think like even, you know, for me, because for folks who don't know, I, I have um, yeah, I, I personally have that that background also of having dabbled into disordered eating whenever I was, you know, in high school, early college years. And, and did, you know, ultimately, you know, it really feels like the table just flips where you have control of it. And then all of a sudden, it just feels like, you know, it owns you, you know, type of a thing. And, and everything just seems kind of upside down. And so there's a piece of even this mentality that we have around like hustle and what it is that we do and pushing ourselves so hard and working so hard, you know, that I can, within my own story, like there was so much, like I was really just trying to like chase after myself and like find my person. Like that's really what that was about. And so, so much of like my own was, was wrapped in my own sense of identity and self-worth, you know, and how this stuff, you know, can also get manifested through what it is that we do. So that's part of the link, you know, as we're thinking about this stuff tonight also is when it comes to what it is that we put into the world, a lot of this stuff with like, starts with the coming home to you and who you are as we move into that. So I'm definitely really excited to get into our first question. Yeah, what was an aha moment for you? as you recognize the impact of one of your identities on your sense of self-worth. And so there were different factors here that we wanted to include because we can get as creative about these different parts of our identity as, as we like, because everyone's story is so unique. So you hear Starla, you know, mention things about gender, you know, with the, the femininity and, and ethnicity and like all of these things. And so you, within your story, there might be different parts of your identity that you feel like really impacted your sense of self, you know, within the world. And so that might be gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, ethnicity, spirituality, and religion, um, education, fertility, size, other physical attributes, hometown, you know, where you're from, relationship status, um, other affiliations or, or groups that you might be a part of. And so, yeah, just thinking of like some sort of aha moment that you had as you recognize like, oh man, like I am really impacted by, you know, being a woman in the world. Like I never even like question that or like thought about that before or what it's like to come from like such a small town I didn't realize you know like what an impact that made for me or being raised by elderly parents and like not realizing the impact of that and how how I moved through like my own sense of self in the world. Okay, where were we in Starla's story? She was in grad school. 
Yes, yes. So <laughs> I was in grad school and I guess like approaching like what does Starla start to like want to do? I mean, I think a lot of people struggle with that, especially like in their younger 20s. And I was definitely feeling that, especially in grad school. So I definitely explored a lot of like different things that I didn't get to when I was going through my eating disorder. Um, so my eating disorder, like it took away a lot of like social time. It took away a lot of events and I think just experiences for me. So during my grad school years, I like go into a lot of concerts, like all the music I was listening to when I was going through my eating disorder and like really lonely, I did all those things. And again, I started to also start to think about what does Starlo want to do? And so when I was looking, when I was in grad school and learning all these new things, I started to really think about, you know, where is my place in nutrition and dietetics again? And like, what does that start to look like? And if I could recreate my life post ED, what could I do to recreate my life as a dietitian? And what would that look like? Because I never really felt like I could fit the mold of it, but it was always like making me very curious. I was also working for a doctor at the time. And just like some of the nutrition information that they were putting out, they weren't looking at like mental health, psychology or anything like that, or like helping clients or patients learn about how to manage stress or how to reframe looking at food. It was just like very prescriptive on like, you need to do this and this, and then you're going to be healthier. And then they would come back like a month later, and then they were like in the same place or worse. Um, so it was a lot of yo-yo dieting that I was also seeing and just a lot of diet culture rules that were going to that were being created in the doctor's office. I didn't find it triggering. I just found it very interesting that people were like believing this information, but yet they would be back like a month later, and they would be like totally bought in again, um, ready to try the next thing. So it just kind of hit me. And like, I started to think like, maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing is like really making it apparent that being healthy is so much more than these rules. And maybe it's all encompassing of all these other things that now I'm learning about and how do I help people figure out their identity and what does or do their health values align with their identity? And what does that look like for each person? So I applied to dietetic school and I became the registered dietitian back in 2016 and I started working at Texas Children's and it was not in the med center. It was like in an, out, an outpatient facility. So I was uh, working with a lot of lower income patients on, medic, on Medicaid and um, gestational diabetics. So women that were pregnant that also had diabetes or acquired diabetes. So it was like completely different. I learned a lot there, but I started to really feel an itch to get back to running and to really help more runners. I, I knew that that was always a passion that I had especially when I was working through my eating disorder, I knew I wanted to work with specifically runners to prevent things like that I had gone through. I just didn't know how. I knew I didn't want to work with eating disorder patients per se either. I didn't feel like I was like I am somebody that would do well, or I don't think I would like relapse, but it's not really like a passion of mine to work one-on-one -on -one with ED patients. I really wanted to be on the prevention side or helping people preserve their recovery and also wanting to connect with more runners that were like me, um, that were experiencing like racism or again, underlying racism in the running community or just kind of feeling out of place. I wanted to connect with more Latina runners and runners of, of color as well. That was what I really wanted. And I was feeling really lonely at that time when I first became a dietitian because again, I, there's only 10% of dietitians that are women of color or dietitians of color. And so again, I just felt very out of place but going through therapy, it also really helped me understand like 
it's okay. We have to reframe this. And how does it now look? And so since becoming a dietitian, I've really been able to reframe it as a way of like, it's a privilege and a responsibility to these communities that I am here. People need to see people like me doing different things or else they're never, we're never ever going to progress and we're never ever going to change these demonization of cultural foods. And also with running, I started to really reframe it in that way of people need to see me because if they don't see people like me doing hard things, they can't become what they can't see. And so when I was really starting to see like, maybe this is not the place for me in the hospitals anymore. I started to have also this goal for running, reconnecting with running. And so I started to really train again. And I felt like I was at a really healthy place with running. I had already done two marathons and was pretty healthy through them. I was able to maintain like a very healthy mindset. Um, So that was kind of little goals that I had for myself was really rediscovering what running meant to me without competition. And so I was able to get through a couple of marathons like that, very free training, no obsessiveness, not really like paying attention to miles run, just going based off of how I felt. Um, and I, I would really love to like highlight that because it just feels so powerful to me because I, I hear you really speaking to like a couple of things. So, you know, one of them being like connection with self, like you've mentioned intuition like a few times. And I feel like we're like we are, we're, we're always looking out. And that's a part, like I really want to normalize that. Like that's like the most normal thing that we do is people tell we organize ourselves. Like we look out, you know, and try to get an idea of like, where am I in comparison to other Because that's how I get a gauge, you know, of like how I'm doing essentially, right? But I could feel like so many things start to click with your recovery, like, and your clarity on, I really want to become a dietitian. Like, no, that's really what I want to do. I mean, I think, what does Starla want? I'm like, Mm -hmm. that's such a powerful question. And it's just so hard to get there when we're not really listening to ourselves and our person but like chasing so hard, you know, for our worthiness, like just kind of moving out and kind of having the focus out versus in. Right, right, exactly. And so I would say like my early years of being a dietitian, I was a blogger. I had the, that's where the passion of of wanting to work with specific runners came from. So I started doing a lot of blogging. Um, I was also injured with some tendonitis issues after my second marathon. And so I was going into cycling studios, like yoga studios, just kind of cross training and wanting to get some kind of movement in because I knew that I needed it for self-care versus trying to change my body at that point. And I just never felt welcomed. I never felt like I belonged in those places. I always, again, felt like the other only one. And so I always felt like when I was blogging about these different things, it was so not in alignment and it didn't just, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel natural. It always felt very forced. Um, even trying to make connections was really difficult for me because when you're, when you're always been a runner and you go back into the running community, it's like, it's so easy. Um, and I will say that the running community is pretty welcoming. And even though it is mostly white, I do feel like it has been more welcoming to um, people of color than most other communities, at least in my experience, I didn't really feel welcomed in a lot of places. And I would say like, that was one of the big turning points for me when I started to realize like, yeah, like I do feel more like Starla when I'm in the running community versus other communities. Like this doesn't feel right. I'm more myself here than there. And so I started to really think about, you know, how could I actually work more with runners versus like, you know, just any kind of active or exercise enthusiasts like 
runners are my people. I understand them. I understand their struggles, their needs, like what they're thinking about, like what they want to do. I understand like this goal. I understand their mentality because I've always been one. And so this was before like blogging took like a big turn and like started to talk about niching and like monetizing and things like that. So I started to release, um, start to dabble into a lot of those things because I knew that I wanted to work with runners, but all the dietitians that I would go to would always be like, you need to go and get a sports dietetic license. Like you're going to have to like do an internship and like do all these hours. And I was just like, I can't afford to do all of these things. Like it just doesn't make sense to go this route and like learn about football when I have no passion for football. Like why am I going to try and force myself to learn about something that I'm not passionate about? And like, why am I going to force myself to do that? So I just kind of kept on thinking about running. Lo and behold, I started to have this goal of qualifying for the Olympic trials for about a year and a half. I pursued that goal. I failed like two, three times lost a couple toenails in the pursuit of it. Um, and then I would say that everything came together in January of 2020 when I qualified for the trials, the very, very last time and day that I could qualify. That's what I did. So I would say that I got very, very lucky. A lot of people ask me, like, how did I get through that very difficult moment? And it was, it was no longer about me. It was tied to the mission of, again, People need to see more people of color doing hard things. And I really felt like because I had been in Houston for about 10 years now, I had to almost recreate what Houston meant to me through that race. So it was me and my fullest expression of gratitude, happiness, recovery, everything that I had been through and all of the, I think the imposter syndrome of I can't do these hard things because who am I? I'm not good enough. I'm a person of color. I'm not thin enough. I had worked through all of those things. And so I felt like when I had finally qualified, I was going to be able to put all of those things behind me. Mm. A lot of the times I also thought about, it's no longer about me. It's for people who believed in me. It was also for people who needed to see more women of color out there. And, and that day I would, I was two, I was one of two people that were women of color that qualified in the entire Olympic trials in February. I was, I was one of 25 women that were Hispanic running that race. And so it really spoke a lot to the community. It spoke a lot to like what was possible and what could the future running look like. So leading up to the trials, it was very like fairy tale like. Being there was also very fair until like, it was a lot of, again, trial and error and a lot of things that I had to experience, a lot of failures, things that didn't go right, but it was always no longer about me. It was about the mission and who was I doing it for? So again, it was, <laughs> sorry guys. Beautiful. So, <laughs> yeah. Again, yeah. it was just like really speaking to like all of the things that I had gone through and all of the things that I was trying to work through at the same time. At that point, when I was qualifying for the trials, I was also working in a private practice. So I had left my job in the hospital systems to pursue a job that I felt like could give me more flexibility and allow me to pursue a hard goal and wanting to work with more runners. So I started to see that I was working with more runners. I will say that two years prior to, to this time of year, I was trying to work for myself and I was trying to be self-employed and doing just online nutrition coaching. And so I did dabble in it a little bit. 
but the market was not ready. (laughs) And I don't think that I was also ready. I was still dealing with a lot of imposter syndrome around my vocation and my career choice. Like, you know, I'm only very few women of color. Do people want to accept what a woman in color has to say about sports dietetics and even more so sports nutrition and running? Like, are people ready for a sports dietitian that is a woman of color? So I, I felt, I felt a lot of imposter syndrome around that and that I was still very young, but I knew I had like this passion to work with just runners and that's what I wanted to do. And so I kept just trying to speak to runners throughout that entire time. Lo and behold, COVID happened. And I think it really shook a lot of businesses, but had I never, ever tried to pursue online nutrition coaching with runners two years ago, I think I would still be very scared and have the imposter syndrome. I knew what I had to do two years ago. And so within, I think, a weekend, I was telling Holly and B that I called my friend after a phone call I had received from a prospective client. And I called her and I said, I think it's time. And she's like, I think it is time. And so within three hours, I had everything already ready. I had my payment system. (laughs) I was going to like convert people and I was just all in. And so two days later, I left my job. And I went like whole body in, jumped right in and just just been growing ever since. And so today I actually had my first call with my first assistants. So it's been a very interesting road, but it's always been, again, listening to intuition, having a mission, working off of values and disrupting with integrity. Love that. I do. Yeah. It's a, yeah, I was saying, like, I think that's a really good time for us to pause for our next question. Yeah. Know? And so to that point, then, too, I'll just say this real quick. Like, um, I like the the depth to mm-hmm. your story is just so profound and just so beautiful. beautiful. And mm-hmm. like the emotion, you know, that comes with that is because like, you know, like what you've experienced, you know, what all of these moments mean and like what led up to it. And so I can't help but think of not just like the younger versions of you as you move through that, but people who are in their own version of, you know, part of that story, you know, where they might be in a place where they feel like they're questioning themselves or feeling like that imposter syndrome or wondering, like, I don't feel like I belong here. And so it really just like, for anyone, you know, listening to this, where this like speaks to your heart, like keep going, mm-hmm. like you've got to keep going. And just because it doesn't feel quite right, doesn't mean that this is wrong in a way that's like, this is the end of it. You know, like it's the listening to it. Charlie, that's just like a be- the uh, one of the, the most beautiful gifts I feel like that you're giving us tonight mm-hmm. is like really like staying true to listening to your inner voice and not quitting, you know, that persistence that you had from like such a young age, like, you know what it's like to like run yourself freaking hard, but you also know what it's like to like not give up on yourself, you know, even in like the the hardest moments. Right. Right. And I think like, again, it's a lot of, you see kind of like the extremes as well of like kind of how I hustled really hard and like worked really hard And then I've had to like back off and like stay in tune and like listen and then like, again, make another move. So it's always been a lot of those ebbs and flows. 
the same way that any training cycle is, is that it always has the ebbs and flows of like, this is where you need to push and focus. And again, just like in a race, this is where you have to focus. And this is where you kind of settle in. So it's always been a lot of those ebbs and flows, I think, throughout my life. And I think also where, where I think like, where I think a lot of times that people get really scared to try, like you always have to just own your story. And Mm -hmm. that was a really hard thing that I had to do in my training was like, just own my story and own what I had gone through, because that was going to be able to pull me through the last 10, 10 miles of a race, the last six miles, like, that's where you have to really own your story, and not shy away from it. Because for a long time, I really, really was. And once I started opening up and really just taking it, taking it in, that's when I started to really like, understand who I was a lot better. I think also, like, some, I think sometimes like, we can, we can see like our, our low, low points and we get really scary. But the way that I've tried to reframe my really low points is like, okay, like my low point was, you know, me always being hospitalized, possibly almost dying when I would go out on like 10 mile runs with like no fuel, like that's really low. Like, but now as being a self-employed and a business owner, like I'm able to just really transfer like the negative emotions that I may be feeling and those imposter syndrome feelings into like, okay, but compared to like what that was, this is nothing. Like I can get through this. I can work through it. I have the tools. Like I understand what I need to do. And that was something that I was always really afraid of as well was like taking on additional stress because I know my coping mechanism and I've had to learn how to reframe it. But I think now like just kind of moving into it a lot slowly and like really uncovering and again, owning my story and like owning that I am imperfect um, has really helped me like be able to challenge thoughts that come in and really also trust myself to step into who I am supposed to become now. I think that's what I'm struck by with your story too, Starla, is that like you get this kind of like sense within you often it's like mm, like something needs to be done here or like something's not quite right or, and you're not you're not afraid to like stick with it long enough to then like take action on it you know I yes. love that like it's been yes. multiple times throughout your story like mm, mm. And you, like you do something about it which I think is so cool yeah well it's funny I heard a podcast one time and they say that like people who have had like mental illnesses and like have gone through like 12 step programs because eating disorder recovery is very much like a 12 step program that we have to like be in deep suffering in order to make a change. Like some people will feel like any kind of suffering then like pivot, but like my personality, I have to be in deep suffering. Like there were times when I was driving to the hospital crying because I knew that it was not where I was supposed to be. And like I remember coming home and like the second that happened, I was like, all right, I'm leaving. Like I cannot stay here or else like this is going to continually happen. And then I don't know what's going to happen eventually. Like, I don't want to get to that point, but it's like recognizing that there's deep suffering. And when it expresses itself into this physical emotion, like the crying, I knew Mm -hmm. I had to change something. Same thing. Like the last time that I, I had jumped and I became self-employed, I was on the call with my friend and I cried and I had spoken to the same friend a month before 
And I cried because I was just, I knew that I was not supposed to be there because I was not living within my value systems. It was Mm -hmm. not the mission that I needed to continue pursuing. And so I think like the marathon and going into the trials, it really brought a lot of clarity to me. And like, this is the mission that I'm supposed to be pursuing. I'm supposed to be a woman of color and I'm supposed to own being a woman of color in this space. And it's okay if you're the only one because you already know how to deal with being the only one. Well, I just can't wait to, to, to get into this next question in part mm-hmm. because um, I really want to normalize because depending on where you are too, like you might find that you like lean intuitive naturally, but it really is so much of that is a muscle, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I can be really intuitive and be completely disconnected because I'm not engaging in a practice that helps me become attuned to myself and my person and what's going on. And so we had talked about just the benefit of therapy in our, in our small group, but it's in so many ways, like, you know, it's really, you mentioned almost even like people in your life in general, when you feel safe enough with, you can like access more of yourself. You know, mm-hmm. you're saying like, this is the second time I've cried with this person, you know, sometimes even just being with a supportive friend, yeah. you know, or journaling, like there's just so many different things that can like help us or to, to tap in. So mm-hmm. on that note. Right. Um, we can tap saying. in with our next, yeah, we can tap into our next question to help get in touch with ourselves. So as we're looking at now and coming home to yourself, um, what does your most connected self look like? And how do you go about expressing that self to the world? And so I think that like, um, you know, Starla, you'd mentioned some of this before too, of like whenever you feel like yourself or when you don't feel like yourself type of a thing, that's really what we're talking about. Like, what does that really connected version of you like look like? Like if we were to meet that person who's like in their freaking arena, like what does that mm-hmm. look, person look like? Like describe that person to me. And um, yeah, how do you go about expressing this person in, in your world? Like, is that something that you do? Is that something that you struggle with? You know, like, what do you, what do you notice with that? So but yeah, what does your most connected self look like? And how do you go about expressing that self to the world? I picture this one as like, it's like that moment that like Starla crossed the finish line to qualify for the Olympics and like went home and got on a call and coached someone, a runner for nutrition online. You know, like that's this answer to that question. It's like that day, it's like, yes, that's her most connected self. You know? <laughs> I immediately go to like dancing at home in your underwear. What was that like? <laughs> it's like nobody's watching. Yeah. <laughs> love to leave you guys with a question for you to take into your life so we have reached the end of our time together for for this evening um but take this with you take this with you to journal take this with you to your partner to a friend to a roommate to a parent you know these are beautiful things we want to just give to you to, to continue to take out into your life so our question as we look forward into our future is what's one action step that you want to commit to to help bring your sense of self into your work or into your life, you know, because again, like you, you, we feel so much of this stuff touching on self-worthiness, self-identity, how we get in touch and connected with self and how we bring this stuff into the vocational pieces of our lives. 
And I get this sounds a little coachy, you know, with one action step. But the truth is, too, is that like, it does take intention, you know, anything that we want to do with our lives, anything that we want to bring into our world does take even if it's the gentlest intention, even if it's like, and I want to just like, pay a little bit more attention to, you know, for me, I was talking about kind of like the creative, you know, outlets of like, yeah, you know, like I, man, I can notice that I'm not exposing myself to the things that usually bring me a lot of joy, you know, or like, is there something else that I can do, you know, that feels in alignment with that also. So just thinking about like, what's one thing, one thing that you'd love to commit to and, and, and bring into your life to um, foster that sense of self in a way that brings you joy. So we want to thank you guys so much for being here tonight. The final word that Starla wanted to leave you guys with. Starla, could you uh, read it out to us? Because I wanted to hear it in your beautiful voice. So I think when you stop (laughs) obsessing about your insecurities, you start making space for all the other valuable things in life. Mm, I love that so much. Thank you so much for your time with us, Starla. We loved hearing your story. Loved hearing more and more about you and your life. And we will see you next month. Yeah, take good care, guys. Thank you so much for listening, y'all. It just warms my heart to be able to be with you human to human. We're never alone. And storytelling really has this way of reminding us of that. For sure. And the biggest gift we hope to leave you with is the power of sharing through story and listening through curiosity. It feels a little weird to ask y'all to review our show, like, rate our humanness. But sharing does help us get the word out. So thanks in advance for spreading the love on this special project. Stay kind and curious y'all talk soon and keep up with us at humanhq.org and on instagram at human underscore hq we'll keep these peaks into our world coming your way as a part of our mission to inspire storytelling and curiosity so stay tuned and talk soon